This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Excited to share with you tonight's launch for the incredible book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop by breakbeat author Felicia Rose Chavez. And to hear what I'm sure will be an amazing conversation with Kiese Lehman. As mentioned in our video, please use the chat to engage, spread love only, and post any questions to either of our speakers as they come to you. I want to give a special shout out and thanks to our captioner tonight, Jordan Mocha, for making this event accessible to you all. Um, a little bit about the book in case you're new and unfamiliar. The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop is a call to create healthy, sustainable, and empowering classroom communities. Award-winning educator Felicia Rose Chavez exposes the invisible politics of power and privilege that have silenced writers of color for far too long. I'm one of those writers of colors uh, of color. I wish I would have had this book when I was going through my programs. I'm super excited and honored to be a part of this journey. Um, and a little bit about our speakers tonight. Felicia Rose Chavez is an award-winning educator with an MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Iowa. She's the author of the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom, which you should hold it in your hand. You should get this book. <laughs> yes. And co-editor of the Breakbeat Poets Volume 4, Latinx, with Willie Pardomo and Jose Olivares. Chavez served as program director to Young Chicago author, Girl Speak, a great web scene for young women. She went on to teach writing at the University of New Mexico, where she was distinguished as the most innovator instructor of the year. The University of Iowa, where she was distinguished as the outstanding instructor of the year. And Colorado College, where she received the Theodore Roosevelt Collins Outstanding Faculty Award. So clearly her teaching game is tight. Her creative scholarship earned her a Ronald E. McNair Fellowship, a University of Iowa Graduate Dean's Fellowship, a Riley Scholar Fellowship and a Hatley Creatives Fellowship. Originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Felicia currently serves as scholar in residence in creativity and innovation at Colorado College. You can find her at www.antiracesworkshop.com. The site is almost as beautiful as the book. They both pretty fly. <laughs> and then she's going to be in conversation with the amazing Kiese Lehman who is a Black Southern writer born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. Lehman attended Millsaps College and Jackson State University before graduating from Oberlin College. He earned an MFA in fiction from Indiana University, shout out IU. <laughs> Lehman is currently the Ottilie Schillig Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Mississippi. Lehman is the author of the novel Long Division, the collection of essays, which has been recently re-released, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and Heavy, an American memoir. Heavy, winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medal, the LA Times Isherwood Prize, say that three times fast, for autobiographical prose and Audible's audiobook of the year, was named one of the best books of 2018 by the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, NPR, Broadly, Library Journal, The Washington Post, Southern Living, among many, many others. 
Lehman is the recipient of the 2019 Austin Riggs Erickson Prize for Excellence in Mental Health Media. Lehman has written stories and news for numerous publications, including Esquire, McSweeney's, New York Times, Virginia Quarterly Review, ESPN, The Guardian, Penn, all over the map, all over the map. It's going to be great. I'm so excited um, for y'all to go ahead and be in this conversation with us. So, KSA, take it away. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much, Erica, for uh, just being dope generally um, and, and, and being a dope writer, but also just being so dope at these events that the ones that I've been able to see. And uh, I'm just so grateful to be here tonight with Felicia for lots of reasons. But one, because I got this book when I was on um, fellowship this year. I'm on my fellowship this year. I'm not teaching this year. First time I haven't taught in uh, probably like 18 years, 19 years. And um, the book made me want to throw away my writing projects and just jump back into the classroom. And there are lots of reasons for that that I think we can get into. But I was just captivated by your sort of like highlighting and then ultimately like dissembling of deep listening. And I wanted to start this conversation, Felicia, by asking you if you came to uh, Iowa, like understanding the importance of deep listening. And can you talk to me about how the workshop experience as you had it really made deep listening something that, you know, could partially revolutionize workshop spaces? Can we start there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, can we just say that this is a big deal for me? And I am so honored to be having a conversation with you. In case I didn't mention that, I wrote him like a quick love letter after the book, after I'd finished the manuscript. I just like, I, I nodded to everyone who was on my nightstand and those books that had like sustained me, stayed with me. I wrote the book for two years while I was in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was like, I needed that like community and my mentors were stacked up there. And now I'm in conversation with you and it's just, it's so meaningful to me. So thank you for taking time to talk with me for reading the book, which is wild and so cool. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we, we talked a bit um, over email about this idea of radical writing communities. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to, to um, pursue a radical writing community back in Chicago. Um, I heard Kevin Koval, poet, activist, mm-hmm. Chicago, and Kevin Koval um, reading at an MLK Day service event at um, Garfield Park Conservatory and or Humboldt Park Conservatory. And I was like, so moved by what his, what his message was and how he was interacting with the young people around him. I said, that is a model that I've never witnessed before. And I followed them. I, I, I pursued young Chicago authors. I actually sat on their doorstep, um, and, and volunteered. I was like, I was scrubbing toilets. I was, I was making sandwiches. I was doing whatever they needed me to do. I'd say yes. Um, because I just wanted to be part of what they were building and they were building it with no one's permission because it was outside academia. So they had high schoolers from all over Chicago who would come on a Saturday, you know, and, and we would learn together. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I was just so moved by that modeling of, of mentorship. And it was like, it was how to love, it was how to teach, but it was how to love and how to mentor and how to 
deeply be in dialogue, right? And pivot and adjust um, and learn from our young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, having that exposure um, showed me that there was a different way. And I had been a student for years, obviously, up until that point. And when I did um, enroll at Iowa, um, my body knew it was wrong. Like I, I felt it intellectually up here, but I felt it here too, you know, and I carried it with me time and time again, little things. And I often talk with young people about this when they say, Oh, it's just a little thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a big thing. It just happened. Oh, but those stay with you. Right. And they add up and add up until you've got so many splinters under your skin. You know, where does that end? And you begin. It's it becomes part of your narrative. So um, Iowa was rough. And I was I was in the MFA program as a a nonfiction writing student. It's three year program. And I can't say that there was a day of those three years where I didn't come home, roll down the garage and say, should I should I should I drop out? Mm. You know? Um, and there was one particular moment where it was just, you know, you feel it, but when someone says to you in a classroom, um, and I write about this in the introduction to the book, you know, I had a professor, this mentor, the one I wanted to work with, um, who, who said to, to the class that we needed to go around and have a vote because someone, um, on faculty, uh, suggest that they bring in a person of color for the visiting writer series. The irony here is that, you know, later <laughs> you would join, right? But, but the, at the moment, they've never had a person of color as part of the visiting writer series. And so he thought to take a vote. Um, it was actually the administrative assistant who suggested that we bring in, wow. um, uh, it was none of the faculty members that made that suggestion, but he he thought that it was um, on the students to go around and vocalize a vote, say it aloud, one at a time. And I'm at the I'm at the opposite end of the circle, so I just sit and I see, you know, these award winning journalists, these rhetoric instructors on fellowship, right? I see. Everyone say, no, 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 we don't want writers of color. We want the quality writers. That's who we want, you know? And, and when I receive that, um, there's no denying it anymore. It's not just a feeling it's now fact. And I get up and I leave the classroom and that started an entire journey of, um, you know, what we were calling activism, right? On campus, right. It, it, I really pushed back and and spoke up in my own small way. Uh, this is my speaking up in a big way. <laughs> and it took years, right? I wasn't ready back then. And I tried to go through the channels, the appropriate way, or maybe we could petition for a hire of a person of color. Maybe I could build my own class, which I did a graduate level class where we actually read writers of color because I wasn't offered that elsewhere. Right. Um, so I, I tried all the appropriate channels and the change didn't happen. And everything that I had worked for left with me. Um, and, and so, you know, it took, it took so many years later, it took me becoming a mother. It took me experiencing a postpartum depression. It took my husband traveling a lot and me, you know, in the home with the, with, with my son to finally say like, 
no, I'm not capable of this. And yes, I want this, you know, to really speak up and speak out and to own that voice. Um, and once I was able to do that, I was able to really reflect on this, this educational trauma and, right. and name it for what it is and say, Mm-mm, there's a better way. And I, I look back to young Chicago authors and I say, they taught me that way. I know it and I trust it and it can exist and let's make it right. Because we all deserve it. I love that, fam. I love that. Um, one of the things you do so well in this book is you, you it's not like you obliterate fear, like you acknowledge like the fear that you experience as a student. You acknowledge the fear that you have as a uh, uh, a, a new professor. Um, and that just hit me in my heart. Right. Because, you know, I started this shit like most people not knowing that there was an MFA. I remember when I applied for my MFA. I had no idea what the fuck that MFA was. I didn't know you could, you, you know, I didn't know you could write fiction or nonfiction uh, for a terminal degree. And when I got in those classrooms initially in Indiana, I was lucky because there were lots of people who, well, there were five or six people in the room who looked like me. And I didn't know at the time that it was a lot of black and brown folk. Because <laughs> you know I came yeah. in that moment, I was like, yo, this, what? And, and then people were like, man, it's so diverse. And I was like, oh, you know, and then you will learn how diverse it is. But in my first workshop, I was terrified to talk. In the last workshop, that I taught as a full endowed professor, I was terrified not to talk, but to innovate, right? To try something that I hadn't seen tried before. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your relationship with fear in the classrooms as, as, as writers and teachers, and ultimately like how, like how important confronting fear is when confronting anti-racism. You talk about this in a book, but I just want more and more people to hear this and come to this book partially for what you're talking about. I mean, because I feel like there's a pedagogy of fear and a pedagogy of anti-racism kind of colliding in that in that text. And and I would like for you to talk about about that for a second, if you could. Sure, yeah, it, it um, even the word itself elicits such fear. Right. Yeah. I'm. um the book's only been out a few weeks right. and every time I've post something, there's always that quick response of like, well, I've never experienced this or right. well, racist. What are you talking about? Racist? You right. know, there's, there's this defensiveness, this denial, this fear, and it's so quick. Right. Yeah. And so in the book and, and um, in, in what I carry around in my own philosophy of living is, is this um, uh, uh, referencing back to a quote by Ibu Patel in in um, a book called Acts of Faith. He's a also a Chicagoan uh, um, activist and a writer who talks about being at the crossroads of inheritance and discovery. Mm-hmm. Right, and we're at that crossroads now. So many of us as educators are at that crossroads, and we're afraid to pick a path, mm-hmm. right? Because we've got our inheritance, we've got our. Um, our creative, our cultural, our kind of intellectual heritage that we're carrying with us as instructors, because many of us don't learn how to teach. We just kind of observe how to teach. And we take that, we take the traditions and we reenact them because that's the way we experienced it. So that's what we do, right? Maybe we tweak it here and there, but we're not really thinking about it as, um, as this, um, this choice. 
right? So um, we're, we're at this crossroads of inheritance and discovery. And if we just pivot, right, if we can just look away from our teaching habits, and if we can be so bold as to do so, what can we discover? Mm. And in those discoveries, we can stop harming our young people of color, right? Mm. Because the way it's always been done is not working. It's not working for us. And we're at a point in our collective history where it's not okay not to speak up about it anymore. So I want the book to serve as this reference for tangible anti-racist action, right? Right. Because I get it. It's scary. It's hard, hard to change. Um, I want the book to document my own journey of failures and successes, right? It's 13 years of mm-hmm. stuff that I've tried. And and I want I want to say that the book isn't the like final outcome. Instead, I talk about, oh, this didn't work and this didn't work and this didn't work until something did and something beautiful happened and it was moving and meaningful. And we need, you know, I, I want to carry that forward, right? But it's okay to acknowledge our failures and, and this discomfort in failing as educators. Nobody likes to go home with that feeling, right? It's, it's awful. Um, but um, I argue that if we adapt this this cultural and creative heritage, if we stick with it, if we don't give in, right, if we sit in the discomfort of it and grow, we allow ourselves to evolve. We risk this better way, right? Um, I think about, um, I think about your um, re-released essay collection, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Mm-hmm. And you have this beautiful ending, this killer ending um, to uh, the, this is, this is a pledge to, to, oh, yeah. yeah um, let me find it here. Yeah. I pledge that white Mississippians and white Americans will never dictate who I choose to be or what symbols I choose to imbue with meaning. I pledge not to allow American ideals of patriotism and masculinity to make me hard, abusive, generic, and brittle. I pledge to messily love our people and mess and myself better than I did yesterday. I pledge to be the kind of free that makes justly winning and gently losing possible. I pledge to never ever confuse cowardice with courage. I pledge allegiance to the Mississippi freedom fighters who made all my pledges possible. I pledge allegiance to the baby Mississippi liberation fighters coming next. This is a pledge of allegiance to my United States of America, to my Mississippi. This is a pledge to my home. Are you all standing up? (laughs) That to me is like this book. This is my pledge of allegiance to what education can be, to what creative writing can be, to what nurturing young people of color can be. All young people, but allowing young people of color's voice. Can you imagine what that America looks like? And that's what I want to pledge allegiance to in this book. So if we risk it as educators, if we embrace that fear, surrendering to this alternative model that feels a little different for us, but a lot safer to every single workshop participant in your care thereafter, right? Um, that that's the that's the risk and that's a it's a it's a precursor to innovation it's 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 everything right embracing that fear um and i i want to say also that this was a scary book for me to write yes you know so did you want to say that? Well, i mean i want to ask about will 
when confronting fear. I mean, you start like this book. It's like the writing is so lush and like for some reason in like lush writing, I just don't expect to see as many massive proclamations as you make in this book. <laughs> like, so, you know, one thing you say from the rip is that anti-racist writing pedagogy is aggressive activism. Mm-hmm. That is so fucking like scary to say because so many people that we both love are telling us understandably to a degree like writing and what we do in his classrooms is so crucial, but we don't need to conflate it with what organizers are doing. That's what, that's what some of my friends said. Yeah. But you start saying that I, you know, anti-racist writing pedagogy is aggressive activism. Yeah. You say it's immediate tangible action that disrupts the legacy of white supremacy. What do you say to the risk to, 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 you know, people actually who do love and who do, you know, have beliefs that, you know, we both sort of have, but who, but who believe that like what happens in these classrooms is crucial, is important, is everything, and except activism. It's not activism. What do you think about what do you, what do you say to folks who believe that or say that or have any, has anybody said that to you? I I mean that we've lived it. We've all lived it. That's what the U.S. educational system is. So it's it's to me it's pure denial to. Um, disassociate creative writing and the practice of exercising voice, even academic writing with um, politics in general, right? Mm -hmm. There's a point in the book where I say that um, creative writing is political science. Creative writing Mm -hmm. is, you know, um, Latino studies. Creative writing is African-American studies, feminist and gen studies, right? It, It is every single one of our departments combined because it is a political act. We are political beings, right? We carry our identity politics with us into every room that we enter. And when we express ourselves, it's seeped in these identity politics. And so we need to acknowledge that as part of the craft. Um, And, and it's, it's scary to, to, To write these things, I remember chapter by chapter, right? I'd write in the bed, which is like this weird habit that I got into. Did you really? Okay. Yo, I, write, I wrote heavy, like, yo, on my back, fucking, yes, yes, on my is back. There, there's something about, like, writing the most intimate things. Like, only the most intimate essays have I written in the bed. Mm-hmm. And there's something to me about that, like, cocooning or the safety of it. But I would I would write it. And then I would get really scared. I'd feel sick in my stomach mm-hmm. when I'd pass along a chapter to my husband because I'd mm-hmm. think, this is my husband. He's, mm-hmm. like, lived half of it with me. But mm-hmm. I was so afraid um, that I was putting the words down on the page. Um, and a lot of it, I've never told anybody, you know, and now it's in a book, (laughs) but, um, but it was, it's scary. It's scary to, to write the words on the page. It, it, it's, there's a tremendous fear, um, in, in enacting the courage to put it down and the words down on the page. Um, and I, I do, try to nod toward that at the end of the book, right? I try to connect um, with with the reader in this gesture of like, listen, there's changes possible, right? Our young people are asking for it again and again and again um, in letters to the administration. And I start quoting like students' letters, these amazing works of art. Um, for which they get no credit, no grade, no, you know, maybe a, a pat on the head and, and they're dismissed. Right. Um, and so I wanted to provide my own letter 
in saying um, the, the change happening all around us. Yeah. 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 Can, can we hear a little bit of it? Cool. Yeah. Um, so this is a letter to close and it comes in the last chapter, promoting camaraderie and collective power. Dear reader, a police car parked in front of my house yesterday, locking the driveway. My seven-year-old son watched from the window. They can't come for us if we didn't do anything wrong, right, daddy? He asked. My husband, a black man, laughed. We needed to go to the grocery store, so my husband took a picture of the police car and posted it on Instagram, then handed me a post-it note on which he had written the phone number of an older white male colleague. He walked away from me and toward the police officer. My body said, no, don't go. I'll go, please, no. All that long driveway, my body pulsing with something's wrong. This is wrong. My son chased after him. Wait for me, daddy. And I stood outside the garage with tears in my eyes, past and present and future blurring into one. And then it was, good morning, sir. And if it's not too much trouble, sir. He was just doing paperwork, my son explained as we backed out of the driveway. But I was silent and my husband was silent. And it was a long time before either of us said anything. What do our bodies do with all we don't say? Does your body suffer too, knowing what it knows, that it's wrong? The everyday shootings, the children caged, the blue lights and brown boys, men dead, the endless assault by white supremacy, power, control, domination. How do we reconcile this knowledge? Do we bow our heads, swallow the scream, get on and off Facebook? Maybe this book can teach us voice, to speak out, to speak back, to say what we know but don't allow ourselves to feel because to do so would be equal parts pain and pardon. Maybe this book can teach me courage, because the closer I get to finishing, the more fearful I am of, his, of its reception. I was so sure at the beginning that this project was my life's purpose. But now that I'm a month away from giving birth to my second son, I surprise myself by wondering, all that ugliness, mm. is it worth it? Ugliness on ugliness on death. How do we mourn racism and live racism and fight racism all at once? Maybe this book in committing words onto the page is a success in and of itself. Who cares if every time I read the words aloud, I cry. This is my life's work, but it's also my life story. The pedagogy is necessarily personal. I can only hope that someone somewhere might read it and attempt a different way, a better way, freeing our bodies to speak more and suffer less. I am so tired, grief-stricken and afraid. Lend me your hope. They say that a writer's work must stand alone, that I won't be there when you pick up my book. But maybe I can be if you let me. Maybe we can build this thing together. In solidarity, Felicia. Mm, okay, I, I, I want to ask a big question. Okay. Or it feels like a big question to me. Um, I love that you read the, the that section of the book. And um, yes, I love where you place it, too. I I, I think like I, I wonder if there was like an impulse to place it up front 
you know, you place it at the back. Check. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder about the impulse. Um, okay. But here's what I want to ask fam. And this is the question I continually ask myself after closing your book. Can institutions not, not teachers, right? Can institutions cultivate anti-racist classrooms and do we want them to? I think that's a harder question than it sounds. For me, it is, at least. It's the question. No, that's the question. Okay, can we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, let's talk about that. I, you know, okay. Classroom by classroom, facilitation by facilitation. If we can change one at a time, right? Every time I talk to like 30 educators, I'm like, one of you, if one of you goes and changes your classroom, what happens then, right? How Mm -hmm. many people's course can you change? Can you realign to, to a new future? Right. And yet can this vision exist in academia as it stands, right? This is a systematic upheaval and I don't limit this pedagogy to higher education. Absolutely. Right. I write about higher education because my impulse was to pair my teaching practices as a, a college professor, adjunct, you know, whatever you want to call you, whatever, um, with my own personal story, right? So, um, although I taught in high school classrooms, um, I wasn't like this full time. I, I couldn't own that, and I, I I taught middle school students and elementary school students occasionally, and and had that exposure, and I saw what this kind of approach can do for those young people, right? Um, but the memoirs have heavily focused on higher education, but it's applicable across the spectrum. Absolutely. Okay. Imagine what could happen if our kindergartners, if our first graders, yes. my yeah. own son, right, is going to the classroom and is empowered to really own his narrative, own his voice, right? Um, celebrate what he loves, right? And and say it in his own way. Oh, it's like it's like revolutionary, but it requires upheaval. It requires an adoption at every level. Um, My dream is to make something outside of the institution. Yes. To build something, you know, where our people don't have to beg for recognition, for dignity, right? Our great educators are suffering, Mm. so isolated in these departments where Mm. they experience um, such devastating racism and, and, and sexism and, and, you know, how, how can we, how can we lift them all and make something incredible? That's my vision is, is what, what can occur when it does happen outside of academia and when that's valued just as much as this degree, right? Um, and, and that's what the anti-racist practice is. It's kind of reevaluating what we value. It's mm-hmm. reevaluating not only who we study and how we teach, but it's reevaluating what we prize in our own instructors, you know, in our own faculty, fellow faculty members. Mm-hmm. Why do we hire someone? What do we ask ourselves as we're on that committee, right? What are we looking for and why? Um, and so there's just, there's so many levels that, that this text can apply and that I'm so hopeful for. Um, and yet simultaneously, I hold the dream of what it can look like on its own outside of academia. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I mean the book to me is, is, is most 
sort of meaningful when I think about it in terms of like an innovative, radical approach to learning spaces, you know, be they institutionalized or or not. Um, and I I wonder a bit about like workshop, right? Like this idea of 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 groups of people getting in a circle to talk about one person's book. And what I love about what you do so much, Felicia, is like, you know, I always talk to my students about the importance of being able to write to and through what your vision is. Like your vision for what we can be is it's amazing, right? And often folks who can, I think, who can who often can write these like sort of uh luminous visions sometimes have a harder time saying concretely like how I got to the vision, one, which you do incredibly well. And then two, giving pedagogical tools that you've you've created and or experienced to get us to that vision. I wonder about like, can we talk about the writing of the pedagogical tools? And if you felt at all that you might have been like giving people rules, because this book in some ways is about like obliterating rules, but I needed the rules that you wrote. I was like, not rules, but I needed like some of the guidelines that you wrote. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but can you talk about like that part of it? Where you, some parts of this book are actual like lists. Here's what you can do. Can we talk about the writing of that part of the book? Yeah. Um, I, I love like having conversations about the book since it's been out because um, so many of these like very smart people assume that I've carried this knowledge with me, that this wasn't like a heavily researched book. Right. As we go along, I hadn't studied. You know, when I came across um, the the text that I cite in the book, I was thrilled and excited. I'm like, oh, we're doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. right. If only I would have had you 10 right. years ago, right? And so, um, yeah, they, those, those sections were really hard because it felt like I was coming to it as a blank slate, right? I didn't have, like as I was mentioning to you, my, my nightstand stacked with books, those were my artistic mentors, right? Those are, those are where my like writer friends that I, and friends yeah, and family yeah, that I carry with me. Yeah. But in terms of like pedagogy and the study of, of how educational systems work and different educational approaches, I didn't have that to carry with me that, that kind of legacy. Um, and so I had to seek it out and it is the hardest, hardest work I was actually craving memoir a lot because I was like, it is so hard to sit back and say, what exactly do I do in the classroom? Mm -hmm. And not just what do I do, but why do I do it? Right. And that listing that out, I found was the most challenging work of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then it was incredibly gratifying to have it like to have, you know, if, if nothing else happened with the text, it was my own kind of journey laid out and, and me teaching myself what I did and in a way validating that practice, you know, by, by putting it down into words. Um, I wanted, you know, the, the memoir, coupling it with, with memoir, I wanted readers to have this context, right? I wanted it to be, um, proof that for me, my artistic work and my teaching work, right? They're, they're inseparable. They're right. always reflecting on one another. Um, I'll, I'll ask readers a lot to reflect back on themselves through these like bulleted lists and these questions, right? So it's not only like tangible change through steps. You could do this, you could use these exercises, but also take a moment and think back about you and your own practice, right? I couldn't do that without doing that for myself as well. 
I needed to do the work and step up and reflect on my practices too. And so I'm hoping that the book is this offering, right? This coupling of these pedagogical strategies, um, these rules, as you call them, right? Um, and, and my own experience, um, my own lived experience that maybe um, gives light, lends light to, to why I chose yeah. and pursued this particular practice. Um, yeah. But at heart, I don't expect anybody to take on this model. I don't expect it to be, oh, I have this book and now I'm going to replicate. This is a replicable right. strategy. Overall, I'm going to rehaul my, my own classroom, but instead individualize it for their community because everyone knows their communities best. Mm -hmm. So what would work for you? And hopefully it's just a source of inspiration, right? I can pick and choose what works for me and then try something new, take a risk, you know, be scared and, and see if it works. Right. Um, so so that's my hope with the yeah. tech at the end of that. One other thing you do so well, um, and I didn't expect you to do this so well, is that you 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 remind us that what happens in the classroom happens because of what happened before we got to the classroom, right? And so you actually hold institutions accountable for how they recruit, not just teachers, but students. Can we talk about the importance of, of that? Again, this isn't just about academic institutions. That's what I love about this. Like if you have a group of folks that you write and create art with, this is the book for you. If you consider yourself as a teacher of any kind, this is the book for you. If you consider yourself a student of any kind, like most of us lifelong students, this is the book for you. But can you talk about the importance when we're talking about institutions of actually like changing how and who gets into our classrooms? And if institutions are not committed to that work, how radical, innovative, anti-racist, can what we do in the classrooms be? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, the chapter that I handed my husband that he laughed aloud, the second he read the first few lines, started with, in third grade, <laughs> I was remembering back to, you know, this particular teacher in third grade. Um, and he's like, whoa, OK, you're like really digging here. You're really. <laughs> going back, right? But but to me, they all added up. All of those experiences added up um, and the audacity that I had to even apply to the University of Iowa. Right. Or to college at all. Like my parents didn't graduate from college, you know, that wasn't part of our tradition as, as a family. And, and, um, and so that it takes this, this leap to even, to even apply. And now we have these standards, right? We have these blind admission policies that are so biased mm -hmm. that there's how, you know, shame on us all for calling them blind, right? When we have, um, a preferred aesthetic preference when we have, um, a, a, a biased, you know, narrow worldview, when we have a homogenous staff, um, reviewing these, these applications. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely bias at play. There's absolutely no way that we stand a chance again and again and again and again. Um, we, we have that one reserved spot or those five reserved spots in the especially diverse, right. <laughs> classrooms. Um, and so it, it, it needs to be called into the open. Okay. Um, most recently I had a, 
an attack by a family member, a, a character attack online. Um, he uh, he's a white male family member. He's the husband of a cousin, and he came at me hard. Um, just uh, a lot of rage, right? A lot of rage um, that I was talking about anti-racism, that I was being ungrateful for the privileges that I've had mm-hmm. um, in terms of my education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in turn, I was, I was shaming my family as, as part oh. of this narrative, right? So it was, it was some heavy stuff and it was across Facebook and Amazon and just so shocking to me. Like I had prepared, I prepared for this, this talk back, but I hadn't prepared for family to talk back. Right. So, so I'm, um, I'm having such an intense emotional response to this. And, um, my brother, my brother calls me up and he says, you know what, I'm going to put his post out there and I'm going to share it with every member of our family because it needs to come out. Mm. He cannot do this privately or, or on, on the, the official channels of social media or Amazon or whatever. And, um, and there was something about that. It needs to come out. We all need to see it and recognize it for what it is that feels, um, symbolic of, of what we all need to do. Mm. It needs to come out academia. It needs to come out English department, creative writing faculty. We need to confront it and say, this defensiveness, this, this denial, this rage, it exists among our colleagues, right? And if we do not address this, we will continue to narrow our literary legacy for the rest of our lives. And that's on you, mm. right? That's on all of us because we all play into it at one point or another, oh, right? Okay. Just kind of going with the system, don't want to upset things, want to get tenure, whatever it may be. But um, it takes that moment of reconciliation to say, I play a part in a race-based writing workshop. Right. And that is a white supremacist writing workshop. Now, when I say I don't have the resources to 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 fund and support an anti-racist writing workshop, I am again expressing denial, right? And so we need to bring it out in the open so that those students, me and you and everyone has a chance and opportunity when we do make that leap and trust in our own voices and apply to these types of programs, right? It, it takes a deep reconciliation on behalf of, of all of us in power. That's it, fam. We got we got some questions that just came in. I want to make sure we get these questions, and I have some more questions as well. Um, I think this speaks to what you just said. Actually, the model is partially designed to activate senses and guide writers back inside their bodies. How have you adapted this model to an online setting? Right. This is one of the questions that we talked about sure, sure. for student, yeah. and and this is the second the last part is for students with disabilities. So, so when we're thinking about writing spaces and again, like learning spaces, thankfully, like you show us, they do not have to be concretized, institutionalized spaces. And or how do we apply anti-racist practices, some of the anti-racist practices, pedagogical practices you lay out so effectively in the book virtually? How do it how and or do we do that? Sure. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Right. Yeah, I, I taught last I taught a nonfiction writing workshop last semester and I found that whereas a lot and I'm trying to be succinct here, but I, I found that where um, a lot of my colleagues were um, condensing their kind of online meeting experiences. So they would 
um, not, you know, asynchronous and synchronous learning, right? Sometimes they would meet and sometimes they wouldn't, or the classes were condensed um, to fight fatigue, um, screen fatigue. I instead, I lengthened my courses. So every time we met longer than we were supposed to meet. Um, and, um, and within that extended time frame, I um, worked so hard. It was the most student centered teaching cl- class I'd ever taught. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we would, I, I advocate for a, a ritual called check-in, mm-hmm. um, which is to allow students every day to hear their name aloud. Um, you know, Felicia, how are you? And I'd go around to every single student and they would hear that kind of um, cadence of their, of their names over and over again. And they quickly learned each other's names. And we would talk about mindfulness, even though we were on the screen, we would say, what is your body communicating right now? Right. Because you're just as able to shut down another writer verbally as you are non-verbally. Yeah. So let's center. Right. And let's, um, let's tune into, to how our bodies speak. And so we, we practice that and that took a lot of reminding and it took reminding to myself as well. Right. Cause I'm, it's hard. Right. Zoom makes you want to just live like this. Like it makes <laughs> you just, suddenly don't have bones anymore. Right. Um, so, so that's, um, that's a, a constant reminder as part of that practice. Um, we, we, would spend this longer amount of time often looking at the tops of each other's heads because students mm-hmm. would be writing by hand or we would be reading together. Right. So it wasn't necessarily that we're constantly reporting to one another. We're just in community and sharing time. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, worked on a lot of tangible project projects. So I would have them not only write by hand, but like, you know, co- engaging in, in building something or collaging something. Um, they would play music at the beginning of each and every class. Someone was responsible for the music and we just sit in their music and just enjoy. Um, I, I spoke with a lot of them on the phone um, for phone conferences um, and we would decide on a food for a day and try to share it. Everyone that could, you know, could just eat the waffle (laughs) that they could get their hands on. Right. And just Mm -hmm. try to build community in as many ways as possible. And while those may seem um, like not like a direct correlation of anti-racist work, it is community building. It is um, in, uh, allowing the students to to feel a sense of embodiment, even though they're digitally present, right? Um, and and we are able to um, rally around them because we know them mm-hmm. and we can support one another. You know, I had a student at the end of my last workshop say, um, "I know you all better than than I know my own family." And we'd never met in person, you know, but we had become so vulnerable and so open with one another yeah. uh, that it lends itself to that sort of anti-racist work. And I think this next question builds on that, which is, um, I want to make sure I'm reading it right. Can the both of you speak about how you develop trust with students when they don't share cultural affinities or social locations? This says with their students, but I think it means with with you. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh boy, and my phone just did, so we're not <laughs> going to be able to get any more questions in. Um, but I think the question was about cultural affinities, like how do you gain the trust of students uh, with whom you share no cultural affinities? I think that might have been a question, and or the question was how do you share, how do you get students who don't share cultural affinities with each other 
to trust too. So it's one of those questions. <laughs> we yeah. we do both. I don't think that it necessitates us all sharing the same yeah. lineage or traditions, right? I think that it's a matter of listening. It's a matter of decentering ourselves as this dominant authority. And in the same gesture, right, this kind of twin project of the anti-racist workshop, decentering whiteness, right? So if we can decenter domination of control, if we can decenter white supremacy, then we're able to step back and listen to our students because they bring with them a writing legacy that we so often do not honor or do not acknowledge, yeah. right? So if we um, allow them to be in conversation with us, how are you doing? Allow them to be in conversation with one another, um, but probably most importantly, allow them to be in conversation with themselves. Mm. Um, what is my relationship to reading? What is my relationship to writing? It's something they've done their whole lives, but they've never shared um the insecurities around it, the emotional baggage and psychological baggage that we carry about around these practices, right? Mm. These cultural imperatives. You're not supposed to be spreading your business out on the street, right? right? There's so many families that feel that way and raise their children that way. Um, and so if we can, um, what I call talk shop instead of workshop, right? If we can just talk shop about these fears and these challenges and these successes and the mundane details of our lives, like I got a puppy or whatever it may be, right? And we can share that with one another. Then we can take that next step toward adopting and really honoring this individuals because they are an individual now with a, with, with a history and a name um, and a voice. We can honor their vision for their work without trying to manipulate Manipulated into our vision of their work. And this is both as workshop leaders and as fellow students. So if we can um, really see and listen and be with our students in dialogue as artistic allies, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the smartest person in the room, right? Mm -hmm. um, our students can stop contorting to try to please us and write what we want or what we value and instead exercise their own authentic voices. So you build community and vulnerability by allowing them to be them um, and, and really um, honoring that just as much as you would, you know, the work of, of Hemingway and Faulkner. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How, how do you, this is a question I wanted to ask you too immediately after I read it. Um, Cause I know you have an incredible answer. What what do you say to like the you know young Chicana teacher um, anywhere in this nation, right? Be in elementary school, secondary school, um, college, university, whatever. Who is like yes, like I believe I know that I should be attempting to push myself and my students in ways that are not just uncomfortable, but potentially revolutionary and radical, right? But I got these teaching um, reviews that I got to that I got to deal with. Right. Like yeah. people are evaluating me. These students, these mostly white students sometimes are evaluating me, which means all of my all of my faculty and faculty are in this classroom with me, whether I'm in, whether they're in here or not. Like, what do you say to junior, particularly like women of color who are like, yes, but the stakes might be too high to go as far as you want us to go? Mm -hmm. What do, how do you how do you respond to that? The response I often get is, ooh, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could just start with this one thing, mm -hmm. right? And I look at them and I say, 
or you could try it all, right? <laughs> or you could try it all. Right. You take as much as you can um, because no one's ever going to give you the permission. There's never going to be that permission. I dream of it, right? I, I long for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as is in the state that we are, we're not going to get that handshake and applause when we take on the work, but right. we're already taking on the work, we right? Are. We're already doing that extra labor. That's, that's, it's that's just reconceptualizing what it looks like, yes. right? And it benefits each and every one of our students. So if we, if we try to constrain it to, oh, this will only help, you know, young people of color. It's not true. I've, I write about this in the book. The the first iterations of this workshop happened in all white, all my students were white and, and they celebrated the work. They were so Mm. grateful for the work. And when I asked them to bring in their mentors, they're bringing in these, these writers of color, these, these singers of color, these artists across the spectrum who they value, right. But who aren't, whose values aren't respected within the curriculum itself. Um, so my whole life, I've done it without permission and I've worked it in while balancing my responsibilities. I want us to be unafraid. Mm. I want us to be bold. I want us to realize that ultimately democracy is at stake because we need to nurture the voices of our young people so that they grow into people who can exercise voice. They're emboldened to exercise voice. And, and if we continue on this anti-racist path, they'll see themselves reflected in this literary culture, right? They'll see them themselves reflected in the books around them. They'll see themselves reflected in the leaders around them. Right. Um, Everything is at stake in this moment. And to me, that, that just, that, that's more important. It's more important. Our young people are at, their voices are at stake. So the I know it's, it's hard, right? I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, 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 no. I, I, I mean, it's the yeah. You're saying you're, you're acknowledging it's a risk, but the risk is one that we necessarily must take. But, 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 and and and, and the follow up to that question is: I wonder if we'd be more likely to take it if we, as teachers, actually created more sort of formal and informal spaces for us to actually workshop. You know, I, I think that, I think the interesting thing about like your book is that like it's one of the first. It is the first sort of pedagogical book on creative writing that I've ever like felt. You know, I've read a lot of them, but I never felt them. And I did not have to read any books on education to become a teacher of creative writing. Right. So, I mean, it's not even a, a secret anymore. Like a lot of us become teachers having never been taught how to teach. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I wonder, like. Like because of that fact, do you do you see this book? I mean, this is my fear, and I'm stupid, so I, I'm scared of things I shouldn't be. I just like this book. I mean, Shane Fam, it changed my imaginary teaching life. I say imaginary because I haven't really been teaching this year. I told myself I'm not a teacher this year. I don't know what that means, but I guess what I'm what I'm ultimately like asking is. 
of all the things that you write through and profess and proclaim in that book, could you talk about the parts that you're a little less sure of? And I'm saying this because what what I read in that book, I, I feel like, yo, he's so sure. And there's a part of me just needs to be like, can I just hear a little bit about what you're not sure of, so I can understand, so so I can just feel a little bit more like my complete and utter fear is shared. Do you know what I mean? Sure. This is a selfish question, completely no, so. No, no, I mean, you see, I the, the, often when we talk about anti-racist, when I'm talking about anti-racist work, there's always a question about ability, right? Disability right. and ability in the classroom, because a lot of my policies are ableist. And right. I always answer back with, please write the book. Please write the mm-hmm. other book. I need that book. I need to learn from you, from everyone else who's practicing this work, because I am biased toward ableism. And so um, where where are my opportunities to learn in terms of a writing workshop? Mm-hmm. Right. That's uh, what was that? I do not know what that was. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my that's I feel like that's my um, that's my my biggest opportunity for growth. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and it's a question I get again and again, and I just want, I want to learn. I want to learn. Yeah. No. And I just want to say thank you for letting me, um, be what so many of us are, which is fucking like students, right? Like, like informally, like I, I, I hated school, but I loved my friends because they taught me and they made me feel good yeah, and yeah. they, and they pushed me. And I feel like this book is the first book that has like pushed me pedagogically in this space that I've decided to make one of my homes. Um, so I just want to say thank you selfishly for caring about what we do as teachers and learners and lifelong students. Um, and thank you for fucking risking, fam. This is a risky book. It's personally risky. It's professionally risky. It's a risky ass book. You live in the shit you're saying. And um, yes. I, I'm just thankful. I'm just very, very, very thankful. And I just hope all of us, readers, writers, teachers, whatever, I just hope we give um, the anti-racist classroom a, a, a chance. Um and, and, and it's a book you have to talk about. Like, we need to have workshops about this book. And wherever I teach next year, whatever I teach next year, this book is going to be central to our movement. So thank you for that. Yay. Thank you so much. I I want to say, you know, you say you're not teaching right now, but you're teaching every day of your life. You're teaching. Mm-hmm. You teach me every page, page by page. I take your words with me. I honor you. You are you are, as I said, you are my mentor. It's an, it's, it's wonderful to, to have this conversation with you and now to be in dialogue, um, you know, and, uh, and yeah, like that's, as I said in that letter, if I can be there with you, if you're listening to this, if you're tuning in, let me be there with you. Let's talk. I say that to everyone. They say a picture of the book. I read the book. I'm like, let's, what do you think? Let's talk about it. Right. Because I just, I want to have that exchange. So that is my hope now. All right, fam. Thank Thank you you. so much, Felicia. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Sean. And thank y'all who've been watching. And let's 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 do it. Let's let's risk and let's talk about the failure and the successes. Thank you. Thank you, fam. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.